You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, the podcast where you can discover what you need to know about cybersecurity. To learn more, visit us at cybersecurityinside.com. Most organizations don't attack the tax for two to three years. Why on earth is a subject like this that's so important not matter to me? There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one-size-fits-all. Hi, and welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Camille Moorhart. How are you doing, Camille? I'm always better as it gets sunnier out, so I'm doing even better than usual. (laughs) We have a, a really interesting conversation to talk about threat detection and what does that mean and how how is a sort of transition on the hardware side of capabilities within platforms now come together with the the software and the software industry and and what's possible there and we have a really good guest who's got a unique perspective given his role running planning yeah, I, I think it's really interesting how software and hardware are coming together. It seems that that is the future and it will never go back apart anymore. Once you start to integrate things like that and take advantage of the various capabilities, it's so much more optimized that it's really a transformational thing. But something that I find really interesting about the conversation might not be something that you look at or notice quite as much because I know you've done that role before. But to me, it's very interesting just to even hear from somebody how you go about product planning. Ah. And you're talking to customers, but that really can't be all, right? I I mean, sometimes you never know where the future is going to turn. And uh, even the very people who are using the technology the most might not know either. So I I thought it was really interesting to find out how you accommodate sort of future trends and changes and risks and unexpected entrants and all sorts of things like that. Yeah. A lot of really, really interesting aspects to this podcast. So what do you say we get right to it? Let's go. Our guest today is Mike Nordquist. Mike is the VP and GM of Commercial Client Planning and Architecture. He has overall product planning and architectural responsibility for Intel's business client platforms, including Intel vPro brand across both desktop and mobile platforms. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks, Tom. Awesome to be here. I mentioned, obviously, in the introduction that you do product planning and architecture. What does that mean? What kind of things do you do in order to know what to build into the latest products? Yeah, well, it really starts with the end customers and talking to CIOs, uh, talking to CISOs in this space about what their pain points are. What are their challenges? What are the things they're trying to overcome in this space? And then trying to figure out, hey, does Intel have something they can do to help that? Right? Can we make security better? Can we make manageability better in this space? What types of tweaks can we make into our products? And we have to really get going on that early because in a lot of cases, it could take us four or five years to build some specific hardware hooks into our platforms. And so we got to think about that early on. We've got to do a lot of research in that space to try to figure out what those are. And then we take that information. We also work with a lot of partners, right? So we're trying to figure out whether it's, you know, Microsoft or Google on OSB side of the house or some OEMs like Dell or HP and Lenovo. Hey, how do we work together with them to try to actually solve those problems that customers have? 
How often do you feel like trends in security emerge along a path that's somewhat predictable? Like it's evolutionary and you figure, okay, the next thing that everybody's going to need is obviously going to be C because we saw B before that and we started with A. Or how often is it that you and maybe the customer too, I don't know, are completely surprised? Like there's some use case that people end up applying that no one thought of and, and all of a sudden the whole industry kind of has to revamp the underlying security architecture. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a mix of that. There's some things that you plan out. How am I, you know, improving encryption over time in this in this space? How do I stay ahead of what level of encryption that I need? But then there's things that will just get thrown out there that you don't anticipate, you don't see coming. And I think a lot of how you see people attack, you you see kind of new variants kind of coming in. And so just trying to solve a problem, especially if you're three or four years out saying you're going to you know, address everything is probably a little bit naive, right? So you have to look at it and say, how do I offer flexibility in the space? How do I do things like looking at behavior versus just looking at a, a signature of something and leave some kind of programmability or adaptability in, in whatever you're designing? Yeah, well, one of, one of the things that uh, I know we, we, we talked about while we were preparing for today's podcast was how the technologies evolve both on the hardware side, you know, how do you make encryption faster or better? And then also on the software side within the security world and how those two sort of come together. And I think one of those areas, obviously, that we wanted to talk about today is threat detection. And I wonder if you could just spend a minute and sort of talk about those two trends and then how do they come together with threat detection? There's a lot of work that we do just down at the hardware level of securing boot and doing things with the OS that's great. But there's a whole other security ecosystem that when you go talk to a, a CISO or a IT decision maker, a lot of times you say, what's your security strategy? And they'll immediately jump to a, a software vendor, right? An AV provider, you know, whether it be CrowdStrike, whether it be Defender, that's kind of been their strategy. And they start with a software only solution. But as we've kind of looked at some of the challenges, just doing software alone, was not having the success that they probably wanted. So it was, hey, what could you do next from a hardware perspective? And we started with just a basic thing that was around memory scanning. And memory scanning was something that a lot of the AP providers had capability to do, but they didn't do it because it had a performance impact. They would turn on memory scanning to try to look at some of the memory and see if anything was going on there. And then they'd get complaints from their end users. It would say, man, my computer, for whatever reason, it's really lagging, it kind of feels slow. Did something happen? And so it was generating calls. And so as a result, a lot of those AV vendors just turned it off. We looked at that and said, you know what? That would be a great capability that instead of just running on the CPU, we could actually go and, and move it into our GPU that's sitting there, right? It's maybe not as heavily utilized, especially in the business workspace. Let's go ahead and run the memory scanning over there. And that will have a very minimal impact on a highly paralyzed XPU, uh, like our graphics engine, and we can actually go ratchet that up. So you get better security without impacting that user experience. And that was kind of our first foray that we did a couple years ago. And for us, it really opened the door to what else could we do? And, you know, when you talk to any of these vendors now, it's really just about how do I use cloud? How do I use data, right? That's how I protect. I'm looking at behavioral types of things in this space. And it turned out there's a lot of different telemetry that's below the OS that might not normally be surfaced in that area that we can actually look at. 
start to see are weird things happen? Are there some behavioral things that are happening? And, uh, you know, we have these PMUs that were built into our processors in this space that have some signals coming out of them. And, and we could start training those things with machine learning to say, hey, there's some weird behavior in this area. And we could actually provide that up to those AV vendors and say, hey, there might be something different going on here, right? We can help your detection rate. You know, is there something there? Is there efficacy in, in improving their products? As well as reducing any false positives that you might see, right? And we could do all that without having an impact to performance. And so that's kind of the journey that we started off with that memory scanning. And we've actually been building more and more detectors and capabilities on top of that foundation over the last couple of years. And you, you've used a few acronyms that I just want to make sure the audience can understand. So you, you've said PMU. It's a performance monitoring unit. That's just basically a way for the CPU to be able to track its performance. Yeah, exactly. You also used XPU and GPU. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah, so GPU is just graphics processing unit. Right, so it's just your graphics engine that you have integrated into into most uh, modern chips that you see today. XPU is just X is just supposed to be generic, right? It's just saying we can bring in other accelerators. And if you go to some of our architecture days and things like that, you'll hear us talk about VPUs or NPUs in this space, which are just those artificial intelligent engines that were designed more for AI in that space. And so as we kind of look forward into Hey, Intel, that's great. You, you know, of course you always ran stuff in your CPU. Okay, what you just told me now is with TDT, you can now run it on your GPU. So you have a choice depending on what's gonna run better. And as we look to the future, you'll hear us talk about XPU that says, hey, if I bring in an AI accelerator that's actually on that platform processing unit that's specific for AI, I can run it on that as well. And what we wanna do is, we want to kind of hide that even from the software, right? We just want to go ahead and be the arbitrator and they're saying, where is it going to run best? Where am I going to get the most performance with the least user experience possible and actually run that? And then they don't have to do anything special. They just write to, to one layer and they can take advantage of it. And we'll work behind the scenes to decide what's the optimal engine to run this particular thing. in. Mike, is there a specific kind of threat that threat detection technology is looking for, or is it just looking for anomalies for somebody else to investigate if that could be a problem or a vulnerability? Yeah, the cool thing about it is it's really programmable in this space. And so when we started it out, we were just doing that memory scanning kind of capability. Then we did some PMU basic stuff that was just helping a little bit on behavioral. Then we moved into crypto jacking and we did a detector specifically for crypto jacking. And recently we went and we did some of the ransomware capability. And then we have anomaly behavior detection that's coming as well. And so we're building more detectors to look at specific areas. And it just depends on how we want to train those different detectors that we have in this space. And we're building in more capability to support more detectors. So you can start mixing those things together as we move forward on our newer platforms. How does AI play into this or machine learning play into our ability to come up with these detectors? There's a couple different databases that you can actually use to look at a lot of the different malware that's out there in the marketplace right now. And so there's, you know, national and world uh, malware databases that you can get samples to. And then we can actually take that information in and we can actually train our detectors to look for those different signatures, to look at the different behaviors. And in a lot of cases, they'll take malware encoder chunks of it, 
out of that and then they'll write some new malware, but there'll still be some traces of it in there. And so what we do is we actually train it for those various things. And they were actually able to deploy it through those AV vendors that are all in the marketplace and actually have used machine learning with TDT on those systems to be running real time at that endpoint and actually detect these things as they, as they come through. And then we can actually update them over time as well. So it's not a static thing that you set it once and forget it. You can actually update the machine learning in that space on those uh, end units. And then as we go over time, we actually move into more AI, which actually gets really automated in that space. It's not just machine learning, it is how do we get the thing to think for itself and advance on itself at that endpoint. And that's where we really think the future of this is going. I'd like to hear more about that. I think what you just said is that threat detection technology is maybe even a relatively early implementation, you can correct me if I'm wrong, in industry. It is using AI to protect workloads that are occurring. And I'm wondering if you see a future trend to actually protecting AI and, and how you see that evolving. We actually have some technology that's coming in the future that will actually help us protect those AI models, right? So if you wanna put it on a virtual container, you wanna make sure that's encrypted, that's protected because that might be your IP in this space that you don't want to share. There's technologies that we're working on that will actually protect it. I think what we're talking about here, though, is is not necessarily that. It's just using the power of machine learning and then AI to actually just see some weird behavior or things that might be happening to your, your system that, that shouldn't be happening, right? We want to raise a flag and say, hey, that's a huge problem. Let's go do something about it. So it's getting more information uh, into whatever AV or EDR or XDR vendor that you have to just detect that earlier, right? There's some stats that are out there that we just showed that said, hey, once an attack actually hits, on average, it takes like an hour and a half to move to the second machine. So take a day, you take two days, this could get into your system and infect a bunch of systems around you really quick. So you're always looking for that edge that says, hey, if the system has been attacked, how does it notify me as soon as possible so I can take some action on it, so I can quarantine that system, so it doesn't move somewhere else, so it's not actually encrypting all my drive. And so Really, that's what TDT does right now is it's just trying to, to move up to that day zero, you know, hour zero, minute zero, as close as we can. Give that edge so I detect it actually right away and I can decide what to do next. We're not trying to do it on our own. We're trying to integrate it into systems that people already have with ISVs that they already have that just make it more effective when it runs on those Intel systems. Is TDT or threat detection technology actually taking action or in quarantining, or is that something that a software partner would make the decision about how to handle? No, we would work with a software partner to decide what the decision is. So we're just serving that information up to that software provider, and then they can decide what action they want to take based on that, right? So we're not, again, we're not trying to replace the AV, EDR, XDR vendor in this space. We're trying to make their product better. And then they have standard mechanisms for what they want to do in the space and policies. And it's not that we couldn't try to do some of that if we wanted, as we actually went and talked to end customers. So I started this whole conversation about, hey, what do end customers want? What do we hear from IT decision makers? What do we hear from CISOs? They're like, don't give me another tool, right? I don't want another tool. Can't you just work with the existing tools that I have? That would be their ideal situation. If you can go in, this is what we can do with TDT is we can say, Hey, are you using, you know, like a CrowdStrike? Are you using Defender in this space? Awesome. Did you know that if you have a 12th gen system, it will automatically recognize that if you have the latest and greatest updated AV and it'll just take advantage of it. You as an IT person have to do nothing. 
you can just take advantage of that goodness just based by a choice of what you're choosing for an end system. And so when we've talked to end customers, they're like, that's great. I, I like no touch for me. I like that I just buy this. And if it's already integrated with my, my AV provider, I can just take advantage and get benefits of it. That's great. They love it. A lot of systems are, you know, integrated, or I think at least we're starting to have an integration across uh, IoT devices and also possibly that's connecting back into server side. Is there any kind of coordination across multiple kinds of devices for seeking out threats? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of stuff in the works. I think um, things shift pretty quick as you look forward. The, the cool part for us is in most cases, if you have like a GPU, for example, or you have a CPU core, you're gonna have the capability to do that. So the hardware is capable. Now you have to look at who are the ecosystem providers in this space, right? So who's the OS vendor of choice? Hey, for, for client, it's Windows in a lot of cases, or it could be Chrome in this space. As we look you know, over to IoT, there's a good shot that that's Linux, right, in this space. Okay, so now I have Linux. Who's the security vendor that's sitting on top of that Linux version that they have? Okay, that's probably going to be different in a lot of cases than what it is for the Windows world. So we have the capability to actually go do that. I think the anchor right now that we've got going the last year and a half has been client, but there's no reason for us to be able to extend probably to IoT first and then also look at, at servers in that area. I think servers are a little bit different in many cases because a lot of them are set up to run one workload in that space, right? They don't have as much of a wide open you know, Windows ecosystem with maybe hundreds of programs that are actually running on that system. And then the favorite way for these folks to get attacked is they don't have emails with links in them that end users are clicking, right? That's a lot of cases how some of that bad malware actually gets let into the system. Mike, I think it's really exciting. I, I personally think TDT is cool because of its inherent flexibility. It's not tuned just for one particular threat or designed for one particular threat, but mm -hmm. by its very nature, it can evolve over time um, to add whatever the threat of the day is um, yeah. without the, the users having to do anything. It, it, it just can update. Before we let you go, we have a segment on every podcast that we like to end with called Fun Facts. And I know that you've got one planned for us, and I'm dying to see it. This is a visual Fun Fact. So those of you watching on YouTube, uh, you can see it this way. Or I'm sure mm -hmm. Mike will describe for the audio listeners what he's about to share. So Mike, take it away. So in Oregon, we have Willamette Valley that's not too far from us. They're really known for uh, Pinot Noirs. So much so that Rydal, who's a uh, glass manufacturer, had a special glass, right? That's got this special lip on the top that's an Oregon Pinot glass. And you're like, hey, this is great. And a lot of times if you would go there, you know, they would give you as part of your tasting on special events, they would give you a logoed glass with this Oregon Pinot glass. And you think it's great while well, it's got this open air, uh, you know, it, it really allows the wine to, to breathe and all, you know, didn't get into all the specifics on that. That wasn't what was cool to me. The cool part to me was I was sitting there one time and, you know, one of the people that was working the wine counter was like, you know, that will hold a whole bottle of wine. But I was adamant there's no possible way because I was looking right at this thing. And so, and I just want to do like a little bit of a demonstration because you look at this glass, you're like, it probably looks good big because I'm holding it there, but it's really not that big of a glass. And if you actually just go ahead and 
pour this in. I hope I don't spill all over my keyboard because that would be really bad. You can see it goes all the way to the top. Wow. So, you know, when, if, <laughs> if you have people questioning you, you know, gosh, uh, don't you think you're maybe drinking too much wine? You know, you can <laughs> say, right? I just have one glass. There you go. Right? I think it's it's cool because it's it's an optical illusion because it, you would swear there's no way that an entire bottle could fit in there, yeah. but it sure does. So very cool. Good job, Mike. All right, Camille, what's your fun fact for today? Okay, so the Atlas moth, when it emerges from the chrysalis, and I think it's one of the biggest moths by wingspan, 27 centimeters across or something. But when it emerges from the chrysalis, it has no mouth. So it only lives for about five days, long enough to procreate, and then it dies. Dang. Sounds terrible. I didn't even get caught up on the five days. I'm just like, no mouth to eat or drink anything? Yeah. Wow. All right. So mine is uh, is different. This is courtesy of my son, Zach. Uh, it is physically impossible to exceed the 70-pound domestic weight limit for a small flat rate box from the Postal Service. So the dimensions, when you ca- do the calculations, the interior dimensions are 75 and a third cubic inches inside a small flat rate box. If you filled that box with pure osmium, which I'd never even heard of before, but the osmium (laughs) is actually the densest substance known to man. It would weigh 61.48 pounds. So pack away whatever you want in a small flat rate box. You cannot hit the weight limit. (laughs) So there you go. So, Mike, hey, thanks so much for joining us today. I know we wanted to have you on the podcast for some time. I'm sure there's going to be other topics in the future, given your role, that we're going to want you to come in as well. But you've been a great guest, and uh, thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.